Now, most mornings here in our worship service at First Scots, uh, as part of our worship, we will say one of the creeds. We use that as an affirmation of our faith and a declaration of the things, uh, the most basic tenets of our faith. And we use those creeds uh, as a as a declaration to ourselves, to one another, and to the world of, of what we believe. And one of the things that the creeds uniformly say is that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming again. We affirm that he was born and that he died, suffered under Pontius Pilate. He died and was buried, and he was raised, and he ascended to be with the Father. But he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. Our creeds say that. And those, that event, that great day, is pictured for us in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25. And I've mentioned before, that Matthew's Gospel is, is kind of organized around five major large blocks of Christ's instruction. And the last one ends in chapter 25. And the last thing Jesus teaches about in chapter 25 is his return. When he comes in glory with all the angels, and it says he's going to sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he's going to separate them one from another the way a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats that's the picture of the final judgment and of that a commentator writing for the ESV expositional commentary said at his first coming Christ stood as the substitutionary object of God's wrath for the elect And at his second appearing, he will be the instrument through whom God will pour out vengeance on all evil in behalf of the elect. So Christ's first and second comings are going to be very, very different in character. He's coming as the judge when he returns. And Zephaniah opens with a description of the final judgment. And this word that occurs in both of the major sections we're going to consider uh, this term cut off you'll see and that's what I titled the sermon and contrary to a little bit of the banter that went back and forth on the uh, on our text feed uh, it has nothing to do with road rage uh, it has nothing to do with uh, circumcision uh, it has to do with ultimate covenantal curse and if you read back through even the books of Moses And when a sentence is pronounced against certain sins, it says a person shall be cut off from his people. It means he shall be removed from the covenant community, be banished from the presence of God. The worst possible thing that can happen to a person is to be cut off. And Zephaniah uses this language. God, through Zephaniah, uses this language in both the uh, section that's going to constitute our second point and the one that constitutes our third point tonight, being cut off. And what these verses are really all about, if we interpret them in the context of all the rest of Scripture, they're all about the fact that Christ is coming again to judge the living and the dead. So, Three points tonight will be, we're going to introduce Zephaniah, both uh, the man himself and this book of Scripture uh, through whom the Holy Spirit inspired these words. And then we'll see the sweeping of the earth, which is found in verses 2 and 3, and then judgment upon Judah, the covenant people, in verses 4 through 6. But first of all, Zephaniah. This letter, the book of Zephaniah, 
uh, is the Word of God. And as the Word of God, it deserves our full attention, as all of God's Word does. And as is true of all Scripture, the contents of this book, including the verses we just read, were breathed out by God. They were inspired by God, as some of your Bibles say. It was the Holy Spirit who is the ultimate author of what we've read tonight. But God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, used a human instrument to inscribe these words. When you read uh, in a lot of these minor prophets uh, and, and elsewhere in Scripture, when it says the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah or some other prophet, the way the Hebrew actually reads is uh, it's, uh, the word has multiple um, uh, shades of meaning, I guess, but uh, what it very literally and woodenly means is this is the word of the Lord that happened to Zephaniah. He had an encounter with God's word. And then he proclaimed it in behalf of God to the people. And you notice twice in this text tonight, the phrase, declares the Lord occurs. And when that phrase is added, something is said and it's summed up by or concluded with declares the Lord. That gives us both certainty that what has been spoken of will come to pass And it declares the authenticity of the word. This is the word of God. Ultimately, not the word of Zephaniah, but the word of God. Well, what do we know about Zephaniah? You heard some of his genealogy there in verse 1. And in fact, of all the prophets in the Bible, Zephaniah's is the one for whom we have the longest genealogy. Nobody else's genealogy among the prophets is traced back that many generations. And what we're told here, probably, I mean, there is, I guess there's maybe a a slight shadow of a doubt that it's the same Hezekiah, but if this Hezekiah that was the great-grandfather of Zephaniah is the same one we read about elsewhere in Scripture, then Zephaniah was the great-grandson of the great and godly reforming king Hezekiah. So he had royal blood. He was of the royal house. Hezekiah was a very godly king. He was a reformer, we could say, in, <coughs> in Judah. Which, as we, get through, as we continue on through Zephaniah, we're going to find that Zephaniah had a pretty keen awareness of what was going on politically and societally. And he had a pretty keen awareness of international affairs, and that might have something to do with the fact that he was of the royal family and perhaps circulated amongst influential people in his day. It's possible he had access to the royal court, and if he did, that means he had opportunity to speak truth to power. Now, when Zephaniah prophesied, he prophesied during the reign of Josiah. And if uh, that name has a, a happy ring to you, it's because Josiah also was a good king. He was a godly king. He was also a reformer. He sought to eradicate idol worship from Judah. In between Hezekiah and Josiah, though, there were two very wicked kings. We had the king Manasseh, who was the most wicked of all the kings of Judah, And then his son Ammon. 
And during the, the rather long reign of Manasseh and then the brief reign of Ammon, it was a time of horrendous spiritual decline in Judah. All of Hezekiah's reforms had been undone by Manasseh. And he had plunged the people of Judah into worse idolatry and immorality than ever before. Well, Josiah then comes along and he seeks to turn the tables once again. He was a reformer. He was enacting reforms in Jerusalem and throughout Judah. And as he went about this process of trying to eradicate Baal from Judah, something very important happened. There was a priest going through the temple, cleaning things up, and he discovered the book of God's law, which had lain forsaken for years and years and years. He found it, he read it, he brought it to Josiah, and Josiah wept. He tore his clothes. He was dismayed, he was appalled. And he sensed the fact that he and all the people were under judgment of God because they had so radically departed from the commands of God that were contained in the book of the law. Now, because there are so many parallels in Zephaniah's prophecy to the words of Jeremiah and also things we find in Deuteronomy, that seems to indicate or could possibly indicate that the time frame of Zephaniah's prophecy was after this rediscovery of the book of the law. And so we can kind of get an approximate window of when Zephaniah was ministering because he also prophesied in chapter 2, verse 13, of the fall of Nineveh, which apparently had not yet happened when Zephaniah was prophesying. That occurred in 612 B.C. So Zephaniah's prophecy was probably, his his period of ministry and, and of prophesying probably concluded before 612. And... Um, That means that he lived until just a few decades before the fall of Jerusalem. He was a contemporary of Jeremiah and of Ezekiel. So that's who Zephaniah was and a little bit about his his ministry. We're going to find the very prominent theme in his uh, prophecy, and that's the theme of the day of the Lord. And we're being introduced to it in these verses. Well, secondly, then, we come to the idea of of what the text itself describes as sweeping the earth. We see that in verses 2 and 3, because verses 2 and 3, I think, are sort of distinct in some respects from verses 4 through 6. Verses 2 and 3 are a description of this sweeping of the earth. The Hebrew word there is suf, and it's actually used four times in these two verses, Um, It's translated in the ESV, sweep away. Some of your Bibles, depending on if you're using a different version, it might use the word remove. I will remove man and beast. Or it might use the word consume even. But whatever word is used in your version, you might say, well, I only see that three times. And you would be correct. But that's because the fourth time is actually not translated uh, that way in our English Bibles. And that's because of the way Hebrew works. When, when Hebrew, in Hebrew we want to um, emphasize something or elevate something to a greater degree or level, what will happen is they double the word. And so, for example, it, it, you can heighten the uh, intensity of something by doubling the word. So in, in, um, in Genesis, 
Chapter 2, when God says to Adam, uh, in the day you eat of it, speaking of the forbidden fruit, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. In English, we translate it that way. You shall surely die. It's not just that you're going to die, but you will surely die. Well, in the, in the Hebrew, what it literally says is you will die the death. The word for death is doubled to indicate the certainty of it. You will surely die. Or... Um, when God gave description of how to build the tabernacle. In the tabernacle itself, there was the holy place, and then there was the most holy place. And some of your Bibles say that, most holy place. Some of your Bibles actually translate it a little bit more literal to the Hebrew, and they call it the holy of holies. Because again, the Hebrew word there for holy is doubled to elevate and to intensify the holiness of that place. Well, it's the same thing here. So uh, God is saying, sweeping I will sweep away, or consuming I will consume the whole face of the earth. And speaking of face of the earth, that same phrase uh, from the face of the earth is used in Genesis 6. It might be worded differently in your English Bible, but in the Hebrew it's the same. From the face of the earth. And it's what God used to describe what he was going to do with the flood or by, the, by way of the flood. Every living thing on earth was going to be wiped out. So there's, you've got this idea of worldwide judgment all-inclusive, worldwide destruction. Everything is going to be wiped out. And that did take place in Genesis through the flood, the Genesis flood, the Noahic flood, we call it. But there's going to be one more global, comprehensive judgment. And that's what this text is about, verses 2 and 3 in particular. The first global judgment was a flood. God destroyed the earth with water. The fact that the first one took place assures us that the second one will take place. And that's why it's so important that we believe God's word and take it for what it says and believe that, yes, indeed, there was a global flood. And it wiped out every human being on earth save eight people who were in that ark. We have to believe that that was true and that it happened because... It's proof and it's a promise that this final judgment of which we're reading tonight is also going to take place. Just as surely as God destroyed the earth with a flood, he will destroy the earth once more with fire. And the thing about destroying the earth with fire is, is nothing's going to endure that. You know, Peter makes this point in the third chapter of his second letter when he's talking about people who are complacent spiritually and they say, oh, everything's going on just as it has from the beginning. Where's the promise of his coming? Peter says, they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So there's going to be a second and final judgment. 
like, this, like the judgment of the flood, except this is going to be even more expansive. Peter goes on in verse 10 of that same chapter to say, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies, bodies will be burned up and dissolved. So this second judgment that's coming, this one that's going to be by fire, is going to be even more extensive because the Noahic flood wiped out man and beast and the birds of heaven. This sweeping of the earth that we find in Zephaniah is going to include even the fish. You, know, you figure fish, they're in water, the flood comes, and the fish are like, hey, water, we can handle water, but nobody can handle fire. Everything's going to burn. And you notice the listing of creatures in this chapter. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. You notice they're listed in reverse order in which they are created. The reverse order in which they're listed in Genesis chapter 1. So it's as if God is declaring that he's going to do a work of uncreation. He's going to undo the creation at the day of judgment. He also speaks of sweeping away the rubble. That word could be translated stumbling blocks. It's a reference to idols. Sort of indicating that nobody's idols are going to be able to save them in that day. So that the bottom line here is that we have here an oracle of the coming final great day of judgment and the focus of this judgment in particular is on mankind. Why? Because it's all coming on account of man and on account of man's sin and on account of the curse that is upon this earth because of the sin of man. God is going to cut off mankind. And that term cut off, once again, it's It speaks of the death penalty that was due to lawbreakers. It speaks, much more terribly even, of exclusion from the presence of God. This is the ultimate covenant curse, to be cut off. And it's coming upon the whole earth. Now there's a further reference to cutting off, and it's found in verse 4, and starting in verse 4 and through verse 6, this cutting off is referred to or it's directed at God's own people, God's covenant people, the people of Judah. So that brings us to our final point, judgment upon Judah in verses four through six. A judgment more specifically directed to Judah. God warns Judah through these verses that Judah won't somehow be exempt Judah's not off the hook, in other words. They won't be exempt from the great day. Now, I think verses 4 through 6 are not talking about necessarily the same event as verses 2 and 3. And that might, uh, might cause some of you to scratch your heads a little bit, but um, it has to do with the way prophecy works and the way pro- prophetic perspective works. You've heard probably a number of times uh, this description uh, when you're reading through 
prophecy, when you're reading through Isaiah, when you're reading through Jeremiah, and the prophet talks about things, and from the prophet's perspective and the way the prophets write of things, sometimes it sounds like there are these things that are just side by side, and maybe they're associated in time, when they're actually talking about things that are separated by great distances in time. And the comparison that's made is it's like looking at a mountain range, and you've heard this before, right? You're looking at a mountain range, and you can see peaks lined up, And they kind of look from a distance like they're in one big line. But as you get closer, if you try to climb one, you find out, well, this peak is actually many, many miles beyond the peak that you're on. Although from a distance, they looked like they were right next to each other. I've come up with another analogy or another illustration that I think I like better. It's the three stars in that constellation that we call Orion and the part of it that's called Orion's Belt. There are these three stars right in a row. They're very bright. They're easy to find. And if you stand here on earth and you look up and you look at Orion's belt, it looks like those three stars are just lined right up like a few soldiers standing in a formation. But they happen to be many, many light years apart from each other. So if you could get in a spaceship and travel at many times the speed of light and get to the first one, you'd realize you've still got another 100 light years to go before you get to the next one. But standing here on earth, it looks like they're right there together. And that's the way prophecy is sometimes too. And so I think chapters, chapter 1, verses 4 through 6 are speaking of a, of a preliminary judgment upon Judah, the one that's going to come shortly after Zephaniah's prophecy, a temporal judgment and a chastisement that God is going to bring against his people, Judah. Now, Judah, you know, is that southern kingdom. And by the time of Zephaniah's prophecy, the northern kingdom, Israel, has already gone into exile. They've been obliterated by the Assyrians. There is no more Israel in the the sense of the northern kingdom. The remnant of God's people are those that are dwelling there in Judah, and they have the temple, they have Jerusalem. And God says he's going to stretch out his hand even against Jerusalem the holy city. He says that this cutting off is going to take place among Judah as well, not just the rest of the nations, but in Judah, because he's finally going to bring against them those covenant curses that he promised if they were unfaithful to the covenant, which they had been. And they had been generation after generation after generation. Now, God identifies three categories of infidelity, uh, and he condemns them in these, verse, in these three verses, verses 4 through 6. First, he identifies and condemns what we could call creation worshipers. These are worshipers of Baal <coughs> and worshipers of the astrological deities. King Josiah had led reform in Judah, and he'd made it illegal in Judah, to worship Baal. But there was still a remnant of Baal worship there. Uh, There were still people doing it. Um, In in 2 Kings, if you want to turn there with me, 2 Kings chapter 23, we can read a little bit about the the great work that Josiah did as king, starting in verse 1.
Actually, let's, let's go at uh, verse 4. The king commanded Hilkiah, the high priest, and the priests of the second order, and the keepers of the threshold, to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal, for Asherah, and for the, all the host of heaven. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. He deposed the priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places at the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem. Those also who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and the moon and the constellations and all the host of the heavens. This is what Josiah did. He outlawed Baal worship. But idol worship wasn't completely eradicated. It was still, there were still pockets of it. And that's why in our text tonight, the second part of verse 4, it says, I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal. Josiah had gotten rid of a lot of it, but there was still some there. God was going to take care of that, he says. And the people also still worshipped the celestial bodies, sun, moon, the stars, and that's what he's talking about in verse 5. Those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens. That's where people would go to worship the moon or to worship stars. They'd go up on the roofs of their houses. And so what God is saying to this first category of people, this first category of infidel, is he's going to cut off all worshipers of false gods. Well, the second category of infidelity he mentions is we could, one we could call the hypocrites. These are the, purpose, the people who worship false gods alongside the Lord. You know what it's called when you take uh, worship of the true God and mix with it uh, false worship or the worship of other gods? We call it syncretism. And the people of Israel, the people of Judah, were guilty of that, and God condemns it. The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. And that doesn't mean um, above me or in preference to me. It means... You shall have no gods in my sight. You shall have no gods with me. But the people were worshiping false gods along with the Lord. And so it says in verse 5, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, who is one of the most detestable gods of the pagan nations. They were presuming to worship God and the other. And God's saying, that's not going to do. God tolerates no rivals, and he will cut off all hypocrites. But then a third category that he mentions and condemns is the category of, of simple apostates, people who just quit worshiping God altogether, who turned away from him. And we find them described in verse 6. Those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. In other words, we could say they've repented of true religion. They've repented of Jehovah. They've turned from him. And as it says in verse 6, the second half, they don't seek him or inquire of him. You know, we've got those, those beautiful words in Psalm 27, verse 8, say, the Lord has said, seek my face. And then the psalmist says, my heart says, your face, O oh Lord, will I seek. God is calling out the people who've said, no, I'm not going to seek the Lord. We could say that the very definition of covenant unfaithfulness is going one's own way 
not following God. And because the people of Judah were doing all of these things, God pronounces judgment upon them. Now these warnings were for an ancient people, but they're also relevant for us today. They're relevant for our nation. They're relevant for this state. They're relevant for me, and they're relevant for you. Because in Zephaniah's day, as well as in ours, (coughs) infidelity takes many forms, and God will judge them all. You might think, well, do people really worship star gods today? Well, why do you think they print the zodiac, the, the, the horoscope in your newspaper? Because there are still people who look to that and they use it for guidance in their lives. Or they'll describe themselves or they'll identify themselves in the attributes of their personality based on when they were born. Under what zodiac sign they were born under. And that's why I am the way I am. Because I'm a Libra. I'm a Virgo. What is that but worship of star gods? Do people still worship Baal today? Well, they might not make statues of him, but Baal is alive and well in the sense that Baal, I'm quoting from a commentary now, Baal was the god of productivity. His function in Canaanite religion was to make land, animals, and humans fertile. Baal was another name for gross national product. And wherever people see bank balances, prosperity, a sound economy, productivity, and mounting exports as the essence of their security, Baal is still worshipped. Do people worship Milcom today? If you read your Old Testament, you know that the highest form of worship to Milcom was to sacrifice one's own children as a burnt offering to this detestable God. We don't do that, do we? Over 60 million innocent children have been sacrificed in Milcom in this nation since 1973. And countless people today are turning away from Christ. These verses are relevant for us. How do we apply this passage? First of all, no other gods. No other gods. God rebuked those who swore by His name and by Milcom, and His rebuke is for all those whose allegiance is divided. Put away your idols. Serve God only. And let's be reminded by this passage that there is no escaping God's judgment. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, It says that no matter how one might try to escape punishment from man, God will not allow anyone to escape His righteous judgment. The flood reminds us of that. The flood of Noah. It was a worldwide cataclysmic judgment. And another one is coming. You know, people are always debating about origins. Even within the church, We argue about, well, how did the universe come into being? How did God really create? Did he really create in six literal days? Or was that just more of a literary framework for interpretation of of origins? Well, you know, we talk a lot about beginnings. 
We ought to be thinking about endings. We ought to think about both. They're both important, of course, but the Lord Jesus Christ is coming again. And we can bicker about views of creation, but let's give thought to the end. Let's give thought to endings. And remember that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming in glory to judge the living and the dead. But then finally, this text not only demands, but it also invites, it pleads with us to seek the Lord. God is a rewarder, Scripture says. He rewards those who diligently seek Him. When God swept away man and beast and the birds of the air in the flood, Noah and his family went into the ark and they were saved. Safety from the wrath to come is found only in Jesus Christ. He is our ark to which we must flee from the wrath to come. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. Seek Him while He may be found. Let's pray. Father, may our hearts take seriously the reality of judgment that is to come, and may we prepare. And Thank you for providing an ark of safety for us in your Son. Help us to flee to Him and help us to direct with great earnestness and great zeal and great compassion and love. Uh, Help us to direct others to that ark as well. For there's room at the cross. We pray all this in Jesus' name.